0: Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: This is a symptom of what's happening in other industries too. It's a way of companies and countries to look like they're doing their part, when really they're not, because they'd be first looking at reducing their emissions overall as far as possible, switching to low-carbon products, which in this case with food, it's plant-based food. And it's also reducing waste. And there's a number of other solutions within the, the food space. But regenerative grazing is being blown out of proportion as a solution. And it's deceiving a lot of people. This is just not a way of looking at food from an environmental lens. And it's, it's, it's a damaging idea that would benefit from a lot more people just understanding that the science shows it's more what you eat versus where it's
0: from where it's from that's environmental researcher nicholas carter and this is the plant proof podcast hello my friends welcome back to another episode as always it's an absolute pleasure to be here with you to get this opportunity to hang out If you are a first-timer here, great to have you with us, finally joining us. I hope that this becomes the first of many for you. I'm Simon Hill, the host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Before I go ahead and introduce today's guest, a small note. If you haven't yet checked out my episode with Rich Roll on his show, episode number 638 of the Rich Roll podcast, and perhaps are looking for more information about what constitutes a healthy diet, then I highly recommend giving it a listen. Rich really did ask some incredible questions. You can find it on the Spotify podcast app, the Apple podcast app, and YouTube. Just search the Rich Roll podcast. If listening in on YouTube, feel free to throw a comment or two in below, and Rich or I will try to get back to you. A message of support or a question for a future episode whatever it may be we'd love to hear from you okie dokie so this episode today we are joined by crowd favorite show regular environmental scientist nicholas carter to get an update on how the climate change conversation and climate action has changed since we last connected earlier this year We talk about COP26, the United Nations led climate change event in Scotland that's taking place right now, right this minute, and recap on several issues related to agriculture, food systems, and planetary health. We also talk about this idea of an ever-growing GDP and whether that is the best metric for success. Is it really serving us? And should we not be focusing on happiness instead? For context, as you'll hear, this was recorded prior to the COP26 event in Scotland starting on October 31st. Rest assured, Nicholas and I will certainly connect again in the coming months for another episode to keep you updated with regards to the outcomes of the event. I really hope you enjoy the conversation. I know I certainly did. A great mix of new information and ideas, along with many important learnings from previous episodes that, like many things in life, we need to hear more than once in order for them to really hit home. With that said, here we go. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy. This is episode 175 with Nicholas Carter. Hey, Nicholas, thanks for joining us again. It's uh, been almost a year now since you were last on episode 116 when we dove into all things grass fed beef and the environment. So, real pleasure to have you back with us.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Today, I thought that we should reconnect for a few reasons. Firstly, to bring everyone up to speed with the climate conversation particularly with the food system side of things, something that you obviously have your finger on the pulse of. And secondly, to retrace some of our footsteps from previous episodes to refresh ourselves with a few critically important elements of this conversation. So perhaps right off the top here, how has the climate change planetary health conversation evolved since our last conversation, I know there's been a new IPCC report, and of course, we have COP26 coming up. How are we we doing in terms of meeting our climate goals?
1: Yeah, so let's talk about the, the IPCC report, which um, those reports do a good job of summarizing the overall picture in, in terms of all the peer-reviewed data that's out there, all the research that's being done. There's not necessarily anything new in these reports, but they do a good job of summarizing the key information. And... What they've shown is we've already warmed, since pre-industrial times, about 1.1, 1.2 degrees Celsius. And for context, the Paris Agreement, the goal for that, the the lower of the two goals, is to not warm more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, dating back to pre-industrial times. So we're not on a good track. We uh, have already warmed a lot. We've even warmed higher than that in some areas. So like northern Canada, for example, we've already went above 1.5 degrees warming. And most of that is due to significant loss of snow and ice, and that increases the absorption of solar radiation, and it makes it warm uh, a bit more in northern climates like that. So given all the IPCC reports up to now, and given uh, what we know in terms of our trajectory, and factoring in what all the countries have put forth for climate pledges to to try to achieve the 1.5 degrees, Uh, We're not even close. We're on track to hit 2.7 to 3 degrees warming by 2100. And those numbers might not necessarily mean a whole lot to, to everyone. So let me kind of break it down further. So anything above 2 degrees warming at about 2 to 3 degrees, we're looking at a lot more wildfires, a lot more storms, more pollution. Air pollution that is higher seas, which is going to result in a lot more coastal flooding and and inland flooding, and then these ramp up things like biodiversity loss and infectious diseases too when you get to that higher level of of warming. So that's based on the climate pledges you set in place, and that is barely gonna hit the lower than three degrees. So it's not necessarily looking too good.
0: And so. Is the current conversation, Nicholas, around modifying our goals and changing from this ambition, this, this goal of, of limiting the temperature to 1.5 degrees compared to pre-industrial levels, are we looking at changing our the the way we're thinking about this and the pledges in order to achieve 1.5? Or are we now thinking about setting a new target? I hear different people talking about different things. Is the target still 1.5 degrees? Or are we looking at changing that to 2 degrees?
1: So the target is still 1.5. 1.5 is biophysically possible, but it will require massive transformation of our societies. And that, that would be the case even with two degrees. But I think with these small levels of degree difference, we can see a huge uh, difference in terms of what life will be like at those different degrees. So if you're talking of like 1.5 to 2 degrees, in terms of heat, you're talking about 2.5 times more impacts from, from extreme heat, so more days of extreme heat. You're talking ice-free Arctic which would be 10 times worse. So essentially at least once every 10 years at the two degrees versus once every 100 years. So huge difference there. So I think the I mean, I could go through the list of different things that this could do, but there's a big difference between 1.5 and 2. So I'm always very cognizant of how I'm describing the dire situation we're in because I don't want people to be necessarily overwhelmed by, by this situation, but I do want people to know that, we are nowhere close to on track to achieving these targets. There are solutions. We don't need to wait for technology to, to, to fix this, but we do need to transform societies as we, as we know it. And if I go back to the IPCC report, one of the biggest things they highlighted in this new report is methane. And previously, even like the first iterations of the different IPCC reports, uh, the focus was on uh, CO2. And a lot of the media focuses on CO2 as well. This is the main thing. And I think this initially started because it's a gas that lasts in the atmosphere for, its half life is 100 years. So even emissions of CO2 that was, that was emitted in early 1900s are still in the atmosphere right now, or at least some of it will be. So this is why the initial focus was on that. But with methane, it's uh, a greenhouse gas that's 86 times as potent, stronger than CO2 over a 20-year period. So in a lot of ways, it's worse. It's uh, a very strong gas that impacts the atmosphere very quickly, but it only lasts in the atmosphere for about two, two decades. So in one sense, if we have a long time to deal with climate change, then we should absolutely focus on CO2 first. But we don't. We need to address this ASAP to avoid feedback loops and thresholds that will be hit that will make things worse. And uh, addressing methane very quickly can also see results quickly. So a lot of what the IPCC report was describing this in a way to contextualize how much methane has contributed to warming so far. So I mentioned, overall, we've warmed about 1.1 or 1.2 degrees since pre-industrial times. 40% of that was actually from methane. So that's 40% of the problem that we're barely even talking about. We're not talking about that in the media. We're not talking about that in plans. So methane needs to be a key, key thing to, to discuss.
0: So break that down for us. There are a number of different sources of methane. Can you, can you sort of go through what the largest contributors are?
1: So the single largest form of methane is agriculture. 32% of all human-generated methane comes from animal agriculture. And that's a, a stat from the United Nations Environmental Program. And a, a close second to that is fossil fuel sources like natural gas, uh, as well as some other ones like coal. So just because the highest number is from animal agriculture doesn't mean we shouldn't address the other sources too. But this is probably partly why that we're not necessarily talking about it as much.
0: We've got the, the COP26 event coming up, which is an event that, that occurs every five years, if I'm, if I'm right. The last was the event in Paris, the COP21 that led to the the Paris Agreement. Can you explain what COP26 is all about? I know that people are going to hear it mentioned in the media and online. It's going to get a, a lot of airtime. Why this event is particularly important and then perhaps we can, we can go into a bit more detail as to the way that uh, we need to be approaching food systems, agriculture change to, to help meet these climate goals that you're talking about.
1: It's the United Nations Climate Change Conference. And I'm going to try to paint the picture of two different perspectives about these conferences uh, because I've held both of these perspectives on them before. So this one's happening October 31st to November 12th in, uh, in Glasgow, Scotland. And uh, it's a co-presidency of the United Kingdom and Italy together to to, to host this. And they do host it in different areas. They, they try to do it in the global north and the global south equally. So these conferences run the spectrum of being completely useless and likely contributing more to warming by flying in tens of thousands of people and uh, a number of other reasons too, more like just like a networking event. But there's also glimpses of it being very effective. And one of them you just mentioned was like the Paris Agreement. So the Paris Agreement came out of uh, COP21 in 2015. And uh, this was not necessarily something going into that meeting that they knew would be something all the countries would be on board with. But the majority of countries, uh, certainly the ones that have contributed the most to climate change, signed treaties, legally binding treaties to lower emissions and set forth targets to maintain 1.5 or 2 degrees limit on warming from pre-industrial times to now. So that's what came out of that. And that ever since that time has been a, um, a great talking point to kind of keep countries accountable and try to redesign companies, societies around achieving this. Because really what this is doing is trying to lessen the effects of climate change and lessen the, the suffering of future generations, but also like even our generation, like we're already feeling the effects of climate change now. So uh, the Paris Agreement was was a, a phenomenal accomplishment. Now, I'll, I'll give you both sides. So it was a phenomenal accomplishment in terms of uh, it being unified and it having the, the legally legislated uh, treaty, but it has done very little to lower emissions. Uh, emissions across the board almost all countries have have gone up or the ones that are very high emitted have only went down slightly, but not within any sort of level that will hit those goals. And it was actually a report leading up to this COP26 that came out from the United Nations and they said that pledges put forth to cut emissions would see temperatures rise by three degrees above pre-industrial. And they basically urged all countries to go back to the drawing board, redesign these you know, think think bigger and revise these goals because you're nowhere close. And this is why this one right now is so important because this is the five or six year mark now. Because last year it was, it was postponed to this year because of it was in the heat of uh, COVID. But um, this is the the chance for these countries to come back and say, okay, here is the revised target that we're going to to do to get in there. And just for kind of like a a general sense on. The topic of climate change. What's happened over the last, say, five years and more? We've basically shifted from collectively, at least on like the political spectrum of like more right. We, it used to be about denial, denying that climate change was an issue, right? But now it's all about delaying. It's a, it's about putting forth these um, these sketchy net zero plans that don't factor in all industries or all emissions. Really, it's creative accounting, ways of looking like you're doing your part, but really you're not. And in some way, this is actually worse than denial because it's so deceptive. And this is what's happened.
0: So I note that one of the the COP26 talking points is about securing global net zero by mid-century. What does global net zero actually mean?
1: It means lots of things. It's come to mean something like you can offset your emissions by buying ways of reducing that in a different country, and that's largely what's happening, right? So, say a company like Shell, for example. Let's just take an extreme example like that. They can buy into reforestation projects in different countries and say, "Well, because I bought into that, I don't necessarily need to reduce my emissions. I can continue growth as usual." So that's what it's become, and net zero really should be just used for the leftover amounts that you can't reduce, right? So uh, we're talking where there's no alternatives. So with with fossil fuels, there's alternatives. There's lowering uh, energy consumption, there's renewables, and with meat, there's obviously uh, alternatives too. Uh, Eating a plant-based diet, initiating this from systemic level, individually there's uh, alternatives, but say for example, something like concrete or even like aviation uh, fuel, like there's not clear lower carbon or no carbon alternatives. So there is certain low aspects of society uh, in terms of low emissions that may require net zero. But net zero was never designed to to offset the extreme extractive industries that it's doing right now.
0: Can you just expand on this a little more? I I, I want you to to fully sort of explain why this idea of carbon offsetting can be problematic in certain circumstances and as you mentioned before this idea of creative accounting i'd love for you to kind of just uh, explain that to to us for anyone who's hearing this for the very first time and perhaps is not fully understanding or appreciating why participating in these reforestation projects and drawing down carbon is not anything but a good thing
1: yeah so let's talk about the reforestation part first so because companies like shell are doing this they're they're saying we're planting trees and i think with with reforestation particularly there's many ways to do it right there's many ways to do it wrong some of these examples like one from from shell for example they Planted monocultures of the same species of tree in an area that it wasn't even a tree that was native to it, uh, and some of those actually are even used within logging industries after. So this is the the last thing we want to do. What instead we want to do is reforesting and rewilding projects that would actually benefit carbon drawdown, actually benefit biodiversity as a side benefit, and do it in a way that you're planting uh, a diversity of native trees to the area that can make that a protected area and not only draw down the carbon, but protect that carbon in there. So that's a real way of doing it. Now, that that should not allow companies like Shell, for example, to continue emissions because they need to bring those way down in the first place. So if I can kind of help summarize this in like a a very simple way, this is something that uh, I want to give credit to Dr. Jonathan Foley. You've had him on your show. And he described, he's from Drawdown, he described the best offset is no offset at all. So instead, reduce emissions, especially in big energy and agricultural sectors. And if you can't truly lower emissions because there are no alternatives, uh, offsets should be used sparingly. But that's not what's happening right now. Net zero is the main strategy and offsetting is the main strategy being used to not make the necessary transformational changes that we need to have. So offsets that rely on kind of carbon removal technology, for example, that's something you might also hear about. This is it's called CCS, uh, carbon capture and storage. This is really unproven technology. It's on its own right now. It's actually a net emitting process. These are things that companies are saying that they're going to, that's how they're going to reduce their emissions by having these uh, carbon removal technologies. But all the scientific literature, all the I mean, lack of innovations in that, in that space are showing that the number one best way of drawing down carbon is, is land in uh, natural-based systems, uh, forests, mangroves, rewilding areas that were recently uh, deforested, things like that.
0: Another way of looking at this could be thinking about, and I think I've heard someone explain it like this, uh, I can't recall who it was, but if you think about a bathtub that's filling up with water and that's kind of like the greenhouse gases in our atmosphere, and you can remove the plug uh, and that's kind of similar to our natural carbon sinks, our forests, which will help remove some of the the carbon from the atmosphere. but if you if you continue to have the tap on at the same rate the the same amount of water will remain in the bathtub. And so what you're kind of explaining with this creative ca- accounting concept or how I'm hearing it is that, we would be far better off using these natural carbon sinks, this area of land that can draw down carbon to draw down carbon that we've emitted previously over the past 100 plus years or so or 100 years rather than using those forests to draw down current and future, to offset current and future emissions, which isn't having a sort of tangible effect in terms of cooling the planet.
1: It's exactly right. And and just for context, with regards to, to land, a lot of times with, with land, you don't necessarily think of it being a huge contributor to uh, CO2 emissions. Mostly you just think of fossil fuels. But 30% of historical cumulative CO2 emissions are directly from land use change. And if the starting point goes even further back before 1750, uh, this number just goes up. So... Essentially, the loss of forest and natural vegetation dating back to like the agricultural revolution, uh, it's equivalent to 1,400 billion tons of CO2. And for scale, that's 40 years worth of our current emissions from fossil fuels. So essentially, what the picture is, is showing is over the last several hundred years, we have began transforming the, the planet into essentially an animal farm, right? It, it's, it's a huge agricultural amount of land that's used. And uh, over the last 100 years or so, we've significantly ramped up industrialization, which has further compounded and and made the issue worse, and our land has less ability to absorb the CO2. And this is with currently, like land as it is right now, it's still drawing down. Um, About 25% of our emissions are drawn down into land, mostly forests, and about 25% is drawn down into the ocean. So as long as we continue eroding and degrading land and oceans, it's just going to compound and make this issue even worse. And with the ocean absorbing CO2, that's not, that's not a good thing either. Like with land, it's, it's a good thing necessarily. Like it's, it's, it is a better thing. But with the ocean, that typically leads to acidification and a warmer ocean. And it's much less, um, it has much less ability to be a biodiverse ecosystem than it is.
0: So coming back to to COP twenty six and this this event that's uh, being held in the UK very soon, compared to to previous COP events, I, I wonder how much have you seen the conversation shift in terms of these solutions to all of this, uh, with regards to you know how much energy and time. Uh, and resources are being directed towards changing the way we produce energy and addressing fossil fuels versus also thinking about the impact of of food and agriculture on climate change. It seems that leaders, or at least what I've been reading, are starting to realize the importance of addressing the food system and not just focusing on fossil fuels.
1: That's absolutely true. It it is changing for the better. There is progress on that side. Just like a very narrow example is what they're serving uh, at these events. so cop twenty six is apparently serving plan forward meals uh, with carbon labeling and also looking to minimize food waste. This is amazing. This should be welcomed. This is obviously just a small little thing, but it's welcome progress because previously, uh, even back at the the Paris agreement five years ago, they were serving heavy meat and fish, uh, all you can eat buffets. Like it's just this is like so hypocritical, right? So at least in that sense, it's better now. Should these people be flying all across the world to these events? Uh, maybe not. But if you're actually going to be putting together legally binding agreements and actually reducing emissions and and uh, networking with other countries for the better, then yeah, it's it's worth it. But we're at a point where now it's like this is the this is the final stretch. Like we really need to to have a leader step up and take charge and actually. Uh, cut through the bullshit and put some actual, uh, real targets in place. And I don't know who that's going to be. Um, I, I don't see any country necessarily doing that. Even some of the richer countries are saying, you know, they've they've cut their emissions by by so much, but they're doing that with creative accounting. They're doing that by not actually showing how much they've actually cut their emissions. Like in the UK, I think they said they cut it by forty percent. It's bullshit. They didn't. It's only about fifteen percent they they cut their emissions. And this is from one of the. Historically, largest emitting areas of the world. So, yeah, there needs to be there needs to be like a, a, a Michael Jordan of, of climate change, right? There needs to be someone that really steps up and comes through in the time that's needed here to to make a big difference. And I just I don't see who that is, but I'm hoping that this this COP 26 will have that person.
0: Yeah, I you know, of course, we would all want to see change happening faster, but. I am optimistic. I feel like the collective consciousness is rising. I feel like more people are are becoming better informed about these issues. I feel like it's harder for countries to hide. And although there is creative accounting, I think it's going to get harder and harder with pressure from the public. And so, you know, the more conversations like this that are occurring, the more we can we can keep countries and leaders honest. And and push for solutions that are actually creating that future that we we want to see. So, you know, I look back and think about how much this conversation has changed in the last five years, and that gives me optimism to to think that you know the next five years should should see only greater improvements. And you know, while things may not be perfect at the moment, it does seem like. We are seeing at least the conversations being taken seriously and hopefully, as you said, from this we get you know a new agreement and we get pledges that are actually going to, to see us get to that goal of limiting the, the temperature to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial temperature. In terms of what you would like to see come out of COP26, and some of this we have covered, but what has to change? How, do, how does the food system and current diets need to change? And do you feel like the world leaders are becoming united on that?
1: I think there's progress. I think awareness, just like you said, the start of that awareness has grown exponentially. This hopefully can translate to collective demands on governments, on companies, keeping people accountable The more people talk about climate change, the better people can understand the solutions. And I'm always cognizant to not necessarily just be doom and gloom. Because like I said at the start, we have solutions here. And it's just a matter of of picturing these and putting these into place. And when the whole world is focused solely on economic growth, this is a problem, right? We cannot have exponential economic growth on a planet of finite resources. We just can't. So as much time as we're spending to try to put together these plans to show like your net zero, as much time should be put towards uh, how do we make countries and communities well? How, what is a good way of increasing well-being? And it's been shown in study after study that income increase beyond basic levels of you know, achieving your basic needs uh, does not increase happiness. So for these rich countries, you know, Canada, U.S., Australia, we need to understand that overconsumption is a major issue at play here, right? And as soon as we start bringing that to the table and bring that to conferences like this, then we can get past uh, a lot of the BS around green growth and net zero, and these things are not going to get us there. There is some money being exchanged that is uh, for the better, some carbon credit programs are, are shifting finance to uh, areas that can benefit landowners. There's, there's fund managers of uh, trillion-dollar asset funds that are urging some of the world's biggest polluters to set real targets. Now, I say real targets, but they're not actually setting those. Like One example is uh, McDonald's. McDonald's was one of 1,600 companies that uh, was identified as one of the world's biggest polluters. And uh, these fund managers said you need to set together science-based emission reductions. And nothing in the the goals McDonald's put forth is shifting away from beef. None of it is shifting away from animal agriculture at a significant level. Yeah, they've introduced like a plant-based option in some countries. And, you know, they should have been one of the first to pick up this. But they're one of the biggest fast food companies and they're one of the last in, in this trend. So companies like this, they need to be setting real goals to get where they need to get to be part of this. Uh, and people need to demand that. And uh, I, at the same time, I think companies like McDonald's, if they were to shift to plant-based products, uh, offer uh, even uh, cultured meat, people would buy it. People would go to McDonald's because it's cheap and it, and it tastes good. And if they were to swap out their products, uh, yeah, it's not a perfect solution, uh, there's other issues it wouldn't achieve, but this would be a huge win. And this would be a huge way of of doing their part while still making lots of money because they would.
0: We've spoken about this in previous episodes, but in case someone hasn't caught those, can you summarize why is it that plant-based dietary patterns are more environmentally friendly and you, you, you keep referring to beef? Can you summarize what what are the problems with beef when it comes to this big conversation that we're having about climate change?
1: Yeah, so so big picture, agriculture uses 50% of all ice-free land. And of that, uh, about 70 to 83% is used directly for animal agriculture. The vast majority of that is for uh, grazing beef, uh, grazing for beef, and uh, feed crops. So the reason why beef is so damaging of a source of food is really twofold. It's the amount of land it uses and it's something called enteric fermentation. So it's their belches. They they belch out methane. And at the start of the episode, I mentioned that uh, the largest source of methane is agriculture. Uh, The vast majority of that is directly from cattle. And the second amount would be from manure. Both of those are animal agriculture. So this is why beef as as a way of feeding the world is... It's horrible. It doesn't make any sense. And on the other side, the opportunity of switching away from beef. And, and if we shifted, uh, in the hypothetical scenario where we did shift most of the world, at least the rich countries, to, to plant based diets, uh, it's been shown that we can free up 3 billion hectares of land, which is equivalent to the continent of Africa. And we can free up this land by rewilding, reforesting. We can bring these landowners and uh, ranchers along by giving them science-based conservation targets and drawing down carbon. There's been examples of this in different countries uh, where they're, they're measuring uh, how much income these landowners can make if they're rewilding part or all of their land instead of ranching. And in many cases, this is even with areas that are somewhat marginal land, in many cases, these people are making more money farming carbon as you'd call it rewilding then they are actually ranching and this is despite the world barely factoring in methane to these carbon credit plans this is this is just uh, the reality of how we can draw down carbon and and why shifting away from beef has to be one of the first first goals
0: so I want to dig into this a little bit uh, further so in that circumstance where ranches are incentivized financially to practice conservation or regeneration uh, minus the, the agriculture, you know, not focusing on extracting calories from the land, but focusing on drawing down carbon, increasing biodiversity? Who are they being paid by? Is it th- from taxpayers? Is it from these large companies that are buying carbon credits? How does that work?
1: I mean, it's a great question. So there's there's a carbon credit market now, just like there's financial markets, like stock markets. So it's a combination of, of governments paying for this because they're trying to hit their, their climate pledges and targets. And, um, and it's a lot of private investment. Private investment because uh, a lot of these large financing companies are also seeing that a world of the worst effects of climate change is going to be very expensive. It's going to cause way more damage than any sort of preventative measures. So I'm not saying that they're necessarily doing this from some sort of like environmentalist um, lens, but they are seeing that there's multiple benefits of of looking at this, not just financially, but also uh, helping uh, draw down carbon, helping increase biodiversity and uh, helping shift livelihoods in a way that isn't too disruptive. And that's what this would be doing.
0: Often when this conversation comes up around improving biodiversity and regeneration, we hear about the use of cattle within these models and regenerative grazing comes up. And online, I frequently see this, this kind of uh, almost false dichotomy, I guess, that you're either pro regenerative grazing and regeneration which helps improve soil health and draw down carbon or your pro plant-based agriculture which is supporting you know monocrops monocultures and damaged soil can you speak to that have you come across that idea because that seems to be at odds with what you're saying in terms of shifting to a more plant based world and they're being benefit in doing that.
1: It's a deceptive message because 80% of all soy globally is grown directly for animal agriculture. And most of it goes to confined animals, chickens and pigs, but also some in feedlot finishing to supplement uh, cow's feed. So right away, a lot of the industrial crops, monocropping happening is for industrial animal agriculture. Now... A lot of the messaging I hear too is that regenerative grazing proponents are against industrial animal agriculture, and they think the world can be fed on this. Biophysically, without a major drop in demand, it's simply not possible. It's not possible without at least significant more deforestation, eroding of ecologically biodiverse areas just because the demand for beef uh, and what is supply for beef is just so high that you can't just ship that on the pasture. And there have been multiple studies that looked at this. A study in, in the U.S. looked at this that, that showed that you'd require substantially more herd of cattle. Uh, and specifically increasing the herd of cattle is what's going to specifically increase the methane. And anyone that's kind of promoting regenerative grazing Methane is like a a dirty word to them. You don't ever see this on any of the messaging. It's not part of their, their marketing, of course. And so that'd be one. And the second thing would be, nowhere do most of them say you need to reduce overall animal source foods. If you did, you'd be somewhat getting a bit more logical with what might biophysically be possible. But that's not happening. And in terms of what the science says on what actually draws down carbon and uh, what's actually beneficial for that? Like, you know, they're all about regenerating the soil. It's been shown in study after study that undisturbed natural areas are actually better for drawing down carbon. And one of the, the most respected soil scientists on this would be uh, someone called uh, Rattan Lal. And uh, he showed that agricultural soils contain 25 to 75% less soil organic carbon than their counterparts in undisturbed or natural ecosystems. And logically, this makes sense too. You know, a big reforested or protected forest doesn't have a whole lot of uh, disturbed area in there. They have some wildlife going through, but not intensively. And even if you perfectly graze with maybe mob grazing, you're putting up fences. One, these fences are stopping wildlife from going through, so you're going to be hurting biodiversity in a significant way. But also, you're you're trying to mimic something that uh, might store some carbon temporarily. But it's been shown in study after study that it's going to be time limited and easily reversible. So agriculture is really not a good metric for trying to draw down carbon as opposed to other uh, natural systems we have. Agricultural landowners could be rewilding some of their land and we should be benefiting them in some sense because this is happening. And overall, we need to think differently about like and we need to communicate differently plant-based eating and production because it doesn't it doesn't mean monocultures. There's many ways to grow plants that can be done in regenerative ways. Uh, you can actually do it by minimizing a lot of uh, synthetic fertilizers as well because that's a that's a talking point that comes up quite often. There's nothing inherently in manure in itself either that can't be sourced other places as well. Basically, feeding the soil, you want to feed it nutrients and you want to feed it a balance of nutrients that can help uh, keep it uh, fertile. And You can do this with green manures. You can do this with also addressing food waste, and if you take some food waste with some vegetation, you can create a high-quality compost, which it can feed the soil, not use synthetic fertilizers, not use manure, or at least significantly reduce the reliance on those. Grow a diverse selection of plants that is is really pushing out a lot of calories and protein on a small amount of land. And a lot of the other land that's freed up, You know, we're talking like 3 billion hectares, can be used for drawing down carbon in, in a way that is uh, backed by science. So I suppose I can end it with, with with this on that specific topic is with regenerative grazing, it can be better than some areas. So if, if someone's intensively grazing, if someone is intensively cropping, for example, for confined animals, part of the commodity crop monocultures, then land can show that is drawing a bit more carbon down. And that's what these studies are showing. That, these are the studies that are showing that. But I haven't seen any credible study that shows this is the best way of doing that. And instead, it seems like this is a way of greenwashing and prolonging an industry that sees that you know, their backs are against a wall and they're being, they're being targeted at for the amount of methane and land use that they're, they're using.
0: And on the biodiversity piece, I know that you've spoken about a meta-analysis uh, previously. I think it was published in Ecology Letters can you speak to that because I found the 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 results of that quite fascinating and seemed to run at odds with you know claims around biodiversity from those within the sort of regenerative grazing industry
1: yeah, so this is a recent study of the University of Alberta, and uh, it looked at all types of biodiversity from large mammals to small insects to uh, small rodents or small animals and it, it looked at biodiversity on pasture land versus recently abandoned pasture land for whatever reason. And it measured how much biodiversity was there. And it, um, you know, I, should, I shouldn't I should say it measured it, but it looked at all the different studies that measured it in this meta analysis. And what they found is in almost every single situation, biodiversity increases when you're not using it as ranch land. And this, this includes even native grasslands and with native grasslands, it doesn't mean you, you can't have wild ruminants, right? There's multiple different types of wild ruminants that could be part of a protected native grassland that also has you know, some predators, maybe wolves that could be either reintroduced or naturally returning to this area that's protected in a way that is not going to be as damaging at all to the ecosystem. Is going to increase biodiversity and uh, just overall be better for the ecosystem, So yeah, this study just looked at uh, a wide array of different studies that looked at the topic and concluded that outside of a small amount of some insects increase in biodiversity with essentially more manure, uh, outside of that, there was just a significant drop in biodiversity when it came to pasture land.
0: Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. The other thing that we, we haven't really spoken about is governance. And it seems as though the regenerative agriculture regenerative grazing in general it's become a very trendy word to to use and you see it in in branding and, and marketing of various companies i wonder from your end have you have you thought about regulation governance is 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 something needed in order to to hold you know companies all the way up to nestle who are now talking about regeneration to, to keep them honest so that if they are using these buzzwords which are uh, perceived or mean you know, something to the end consumer, that what's happening you know, on the land is actually you know, truly reflective of what everyone sort of agrees that practice means.
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, when it comes down to it, there's just very little regulation with regenerative grazing, and you could be you could go to the grocery store and buy uh, natural regenerative beef, and there's very little oversight to actually confirm that that is the case. And in fact, in study after study, it shows that it's a it's a net emitting process, even the best forms of grazing. So there just needs to be very science based regulations around this because consumers are being deceived, and now it's going to be it's going to be heightened because you have Major corporations like McCain, Pepsi, Nestle, like you mentioned, Unilever, General Mills, uh, Danone—they're all getting into this because they see this as an opportunity to greenwash. And I don't want that to say I'm necessarily pessimistic, but it is. So there needs to be government oversight to to regulate the claims being made and to stop consumers from being deceived in the space. And yeah, I mean, there's just there's there's really anyone can open up a firm it doesn't have to be necessarily a practicing firm and you can register with uh, Regeneration International and it can be called a uh, regenerative firm and then you could be on their, their, their list. Uh, people have done this. And this just shows that really it's all very new, what's happening here with this. And this is a symptom of what's happening in other industries too. It's a way of companies and countries to look like they're doing their part when really they're not because they'd be first looking at reducing their emissions overall as far as possible, switching to low carbon products, which in this case with food, it's, it's plant-based food. And, and it's also reducing waste. And there's a number of other uh, solutions within the, the food space. But this kind of niche regenerative grazing is being blown out of proportion as a solution. And, uh, uh, and it's deceiving a lot of people.
0: I mean, it really seems that in all aspects of this conversation to get to where we need to to arrive at we need greater transparency at at the at the company level the industry level at the government level all the way through so that we we truly know that these solutions are doing what they're saying they're doing you know and until you have that transparency how can you keep people accountable
1: that's exactly it and this is what hopefully things like. the United Nations conferences can can help achieve because it's it's not just a food system that needs this transparency. It's all the industries. People need to be held, held accountable. And this idea that it's, you know, individual actions don't matter. I don't buy that at all. I think everyone needs to do as much as they can given their own circumstances and the people and companies and countries that are more privileged in richer countries need to reduce more, need to do more than, because they're there being the people, the companies, the, the governments have have been collectively responsible for a lot of the issues we got to now. And it, it's really, it's, it's a justice issue too, because a lot of the issues around climate change and biodiversity loss and all the other ecological metrics will first impact the global poor. And this is something that with the United Nations agreement, there were supposed to be billions of dollars yearly going to uh, poorer countries to help transition. And uh, we haven't even got close to the transfer of funds we need to.
0: So just to to kind of tie off on a few of these things then, you mentioned individual uh, choices being very important and doing doing what each of us can. Something that we definitely have spoken about before, but I think it was in one of our earlier episodes is this idea of what's more impactful, the type of food on your plate or where it comes from. And particularly this kind of notion that buying local is the most environmentally you know, friendly way of eating. Can you, can you speak to the importance of what we're eating versus where it's coming from?
1: so the vast majority of emissions from food comes from what is produced so for example beef versus beans it's exponentially different in terms of the emissions now transportation is a factor but it's very small and this this is good in the sense of we can we can really help achieve global food security by making sure there's a better just uh, transportation of food around to to meet food security needs now the pervasive idea of buying local being environmentally friendly it's everywhere i I used to believe it too it used to be something like okay yeah you want it to be local because it just intuitively kind of makes sense that you just want to have a product that is is closer by you and really what's kind of opened my eyes on that is a lot of the work from uh dr hannah Ritchie from our world and data which which really just sums up that a lot of the impacts around around food come from what you're producing and i think there is some reason still to be wanting to produce and urging to produce local plant-based foods. This can help with you know, food resiliency, uncertainties around climate change impacts in the future might might disrupt you know, food security across the world. So it is important still to be advocating for local food. But local food as a generality that includes all kinds of local beef farms, some of them are actually huge farms too. This is just not a way of looking at food from an environmental lens. And it's, it's, it's a damaging idea that would benefit from a lot more people just understanding that the science shows it's more what you eat versus you know, where it's from. So if, if
0: someone does transition from a, a sort of standard omnivorous animal-based style diet to a plant-based diet, how much can they uh, reduce their sort of greenhouse gas footprint of their diet by?
1: So it depends where you are in the world, because depending on where you are in the world, uh, it'll reflect your carbon footprint essentially, right? If you're in a richer country and uh, more of the the individual carbon footprint is from energy consumption and, and really overconsumption of goods and energy, then it's a bit lower. But uh, studies have been done on this. Uh, so the study from... Poor and Nemchek in 2018, which looked at 40,000 farms in 119 countries, they showed that individually you can reduce your uh, carbon footprint by 20 to 40% alone by shifting to a plant-based diet. So so that's huge. And in the UK, where where the the COP summit is right now, it was 40% based on his figures. So it's substantial. And I think making that individual decision to do that, of course, can also be great for your health. But also, it can it can help you kind of uh, be that lighthouse for making good choices that are ecologically friendly. That can lead to systemic changes too. And I think that's what's really important with individual change is it's not just your own personal footprint that you're you're lowering, but it's everyone you interact with. It's what you advocate for. It's how you talk. It's this is what also leads to systemic change. So anyone that says that you just need to focus on the You know the richest people in the world are the biggest companies and don't worry about anything else. I think that's very uh, naive of, of thinking about it like that because, of course, some of the biggest companies and richest people in the world are disproportionately contributing more to climate change and ecological breakdown, but how systems change is from a lot of people changing and wanting change, and that's how you're going to get it, especially now in a world of businesses having more power than ever, governments across the world in collusion with businesses for a number of different things. We need, you know, grassroots movements of people that want change. And we're in a time of a lot of transparency in in terms of how companies and people operate. Uh, Unfortunately, that comes with a lot of misinformation too. But as long as we continue kind of sharing what is backed by good science and what shows to be a good choice and way to move forward, then then we're going to see good progress
0: and we can't forget that a lot of the leaders in the world although they often uh, cop a lot of criticism they too are individuals and are affected or can be affected by grassroots movements as well so you know the the more culture and society starts to shift and change its view on something the more of those people that are in those systems who are decision makers who are parents who are thinking about the future of their grandchildren are also beginning to be personally affected as well. In terms of systems level as we kind of round this one out, I think you you did a, a great job there talking about things at an individual level and why it's important for us to to think about you know our diet and and even the the types of people that we're voting into to government who are advocating for all of these various changes that you're talking about. At a, at a systems level, what would you like to see come out of COP26 in terms of the parts of agriculture and the food systems at large, you know, at a very macro level? What would you like to, to see countries come together and commit to and, and perhaps address within a, a new agreement, if a new agreement does take place?
1: So specific to food systems, we need to have uh, collective pledges to shift towards plant-based production and consumption. And that can be whole food plant-based, that can be uh, investment and research into cultured meat, that can be investment and research into plant-based companies to help bring this further than where it is now. Because the unfortunate reality now is a lot of these new products, like Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods, they're they're great, but they're really just fulfilling an ever-growing demand For products and food. So in order for new low-carbon, sustainable products to really make a difference, they need to displace the high-carbon alternative. So right now, it's not displacing uh, beef, and it's not displacing other high-carbon foods. In order to do that, we really do need governmental regulations, whether it's taxes, whether it's uh, pledges and goals at these uh, United Nations agreements like this, but there needs to be, you know, limits to it. Just like there needs to be limits to the amount of fossil fuels being burned, because we're at a point where we we cannot expect infinite growth for these things. We need to selectively plan out the future we want to see right now. And I'm not convinced of innovation necessarily being so good that it's going to displace these products there needs to be leadership that's going to specifically plan this out ahead of time and uh yeah i'd like to see that from from cop 26 i'd like to see some some real concrete pledges towards shift towards plant-based shift towards reducing food waste and then beyond food there just needs to be a, a much bigger discussion around overconsumption of everything in, in especially rich countries. Because anything overconsumed it's directly removing resources from someone else in the world. And this is only going to continue to get worse if we don't address this. And I don't even think a whole lot of COP26 is necessarily talking about you know the issues of economic growth. There is some aspects of um, kind of praising uh, green growth and I don't buy it. We just need to look at different economic systems that can ensure people around the world can have basic needs met. We can enhance well-being. And let's kind of collectively envision a world where we're tracking these things uh, in media and government. Track the amount of biodiversity loss. Track the amount of uh, emissions on a you know, week-to-week basis type of thing track the amount of water use. Uh, these are things that we need to see on kind of like a dashboard level and set goals in place to make sure we have a world where people can meet needs and, and increase well-being and, and, and not allow certain groups of people across the world to just overconsume. because that's largely what's happening.
0: So it sounds like what you're getting at there at the core of this is a perspective shift, a mindset shift in the way that we are living and thinking about growth you know, I, I get the feeling that you're a little hesitant about this green growth concept and, and buzzword that's out there. How important do you think it is for industries to see climate change as profitable in order to kick them into gear to make the changes versus requesting people think about the way they're consuming and living uh, I can imagine industry who is, has shareholders and is very much driven by profit will be very hesitant to to make changes that are sacrificing those those profits. And, and of course, that, that then becomes a very big barrier to making these changes that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we just collectively need to face some very harsh realities. GDP is not a good measure of well-being. It's not a good measure of growth within planetary boundaries. And once we realize that then we can look at the alternatives right there is different indexes that we can look at there's a sustainable development index there's a happiness index there's a number of different things we can look at on a country-to-country basis and in terms of like green growth it goes back to kind of what i said before in terms of like even with renewables it's not significantly displacing fossil fuels at the level that it needs to to remain within these climate pledges And it's unfortunate because in many ways, they're they're a huge progress, just like plant-based meats. It's a a huge step in the right direction. But we need these products now, well, yesterday, to replace the high-carbon versions that they're competing against. And in a free market system that is valuing really unlimited economic growth, that's not going to happen. So there needs to be collective agreements. There needs to be leadership being taken to ensure we're putting steps in place to plan out the future we want to have, and and if we don't, we're going to collectively increase suffering of uh, future generations, and it's it's we cannot continue with this idea that we're going to have the ability to continue growing. And politicians around the world, this is this is their idea of progress, and there's tons of scientific literature around the idea of degrowth, although it's not a very Enticing branding or name. There's just lots of research to show that if we look at the countries that are over-consuming in a major way, then we can maintain well-being and happiness in a way that doesn't over-consume. And at the same time, you can increase well-being and happiness in other countries that that need to get there. Because if we don't do that, then a lot of countries that are developing a lot more right now, they're going to follow along this westernized path of over high meat diets, and If we think it's bad now, climate change, like it's going to be exponentially worse. And we need to put these things in place right now.
0: Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. On a on a personal level, I know what we're talking about here is more of a macro perspective shift of populations, governments. But on a personal level, I'm I'm interested in terms of you thinking about your own lifestyle and and, and how you live within this world that is you know, obsessed with consuming. What are some of the things, perhaps other than diet, that you like to think about, which enable you to maximize your personal happiness and, and live a little lighter on the planet?
1: I mean, I love that question. It's it's something that I've been striving over many years to get uh, to better, I reduce my own personal footprint, and uh, sometimes it can be very difficult in a society that doesn't necessarily normalize and make that something that's easy to be done. So when I was early studying on in my master's in environmental science, it was a matter of, okay, what are some of the things I can do? And immediately I saw that uh, shifting to a plant-based diet is one of the most accessible things that I can do because I make that choice several times a day. I can easily choose those options myself. And it's a bit empowering too that you can do that. Now, with fossil fuels, with uh, where your energy comes from, a lot of that isn't necessarily easily achieved. At the time, I could not afford solar panels where I am in Canada, and uh, that's a problem. There should be easier access to it, and uh, that's something that should not be on necessarily individual people. But some other things that bring me happiness that would be like biking, right? Uh, using biking as a form of, of getting around like this is just, it's a fun thing to do. It's good for my health. It's good for the planet. And I would like to see cities designed better to welcome that and make that safer. Cause there's certainly many, many very progressive, beautiful cities in the world that still aren't that welcoming to, um, forms of active transportation, like biking, walking, uh, getting around like that. But I do see that changing. And, uh, and that's something that I consider. And um, in the food space, I compost. I, I try to focus mostly on like whole food, plant-based eating. And and certainly I've thought differently about flying around the world. It's something that is – it still is relatively minor in terms of my personal footprint. But, you know, I just want to be a bit more intentional about it. And uh, try not to – try not to obsess over it too, right? I don't think anyone should obsess over trying to be perfect because – we need to understand that we are in a society that doesn't make it easy. So do what you can and, uh, and then communicate what you want. And I think I think, we know, I think we know what we want to get to. It's just a matter of kind of collectively coming together and forming a movement that demands it from the leaders that really have, are empowered to put that in place.
0: You know, this is touching on a really nice point, a really interesting point, and not something that you and I have spoken about, probably in detail in the other ones. But I think you know you just said we know what to do but this is about doing what we know and you're right you need a certain amount of money in order to escape food insecurity and live comfortably but each of us know that with just continually chasing more and more money does not mean more and more happiness and so we do know that on an individual level and what you're speaking to about is accepting that at a more broader macro level and thinking about the ways that our societies are functioning and and how do we measure growth? Is it GDP or is it growth in terms of the happiness of the
1: population? This is exactly it. This is what we need to be looking at. What makes people happy? What makes people, what increases well-being? And of course, your basic needs, healthcare, school, healthy food to eat. These are all things that we have enough. To get everyone in the world this, but it's just a matter of distribution and uh, designing this so it's equitable across the world. And beyond that, you, you know, you want to have something that you want to kind of live for, right? You want to have some sort of something that inspires you, right? And uh, in, in terms of kind of like shifting towards what we want to see in this, everyone has different skills. Everyone has different things that they're working on in their in their job right now, or their career, or their interests. I think we just need to have you know the planet and. Social structures in mind, we're thinking of the things that we're good at, and if we can all kind of put together those efforts towards addressing ecological breakdown in some way, then then it's going to to shift the needle in the way that we need to. And it can be just as simple if you're just like a parent. If you're just a parent, you're parenting, uh, you know, a young child, right? Uh, introduce them to nature. Get, get outside create values that are things that are going to not only increase happiness, but lower your footprint and, and live in a way that's that's uh, kind of meaningful and with intent.
0: Beautifully put. Very insightful. Thank you so much, mate, for for coming back and, and sharing with us. Uh, you know, this issue of climate change and planetary degradation uh, overall is clearly the biggest challenge that we face today. So the work that you're doing in making all of this highly reliable very evidence-based information accessible is is crucial to to helping all of us better understand what is a very complex issue and then ultimately be able to make better decisions so thank you so much for doing what you do as always a pleasure to have you on and uh let's make sure we do this again
1: appreciate it son
0: there we go I hope you found that interesting, instructive, illuminating, and clarifying. Of course, if you did, please share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. Quick one before I let you go. I am often asked what supplements I take probably one of the most common questions that I get, actually. So I finally got around and created an in-depth supplement guide, totally free, that you can download along with a bunch of other free guides at plantproof.com. Inside, it contains information about daily supplements for everyday wellness, along with performance supplements. The daily supplement that I personally take is a multi-nutrient called Essential 8 by NutriKind. This is a product I formulated for NutriKind alongside their team that specifically contains the eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall a little short in. Omega-3s from algae, B12, vitamin D3 from mushroom, iodine from seaweed, calcium, zinc, selenium, and iron. right forms in the right doses to complement your plant-rich diet. To find out more or subscribe to a monthly delivery, head to NutriKind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com and use the code plantproof for 15% off your purchase. So in summary, grab a copy of the supplement guide at plantproof.com And if you are in the market for a daily multi-nutrient to cover your bases, head to NutriKind.com and use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off. On that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and for your ongoing interest in evidence-based nutrition. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days' time. Until then, remember... More plants, my friends. More plants.